0: Welcome. My name is Will Duvall. I'm the lead pastor here at West Hills. Uh, On behalf of myself, the elders, the rest of the staff, uh, it's so good to have you with us, especially if you are joining us um, for the first time, whether you're family friend of of, uh, someone who is just dedicated or you just found us uh, online, we're so glad you're here. I want to begin this morning with a story. Many moons ago, um, I remember exactly where I was and how I felt as my time in middle school, I realized was starting to draw to a close. Uh, Now, junior high was not especially great for me, but it was at least a known quantity. And I realized that I really had no reason to expect that high school was going to be much better, except that now I'd be low man on the totem pole again, fresh meat. And so as eighth grade graduation approached, I broke down one night in tears and in fear of the unknown, the other side of the school building. And I went to my mom for comfort, and my mom assured me that high school would be different. It would be better. You know, you'll start dating, you'll start driving, more independence. It's, it's going to be great. And she was right. But almost four years to the day later, I found myself back in the same spot all over again. I had loved high school, but now on high school graduation night, I was back in my mom's bedroom once again, crying, this time not in fear, but in sadness. I didn't want to leave my friends, my family, my home. Had I made a terrible mistake choosing a college so far from everything that I'd ever known and loved, and once again, I turned to my mom for comfort, and she said, I If you think high school was great, just wait. I mean, college, come on. Six months from now, you're going to be laughing that you were ever so sad about leaving us. College is going to be amazing. And once again, mother knows best. She was right. College was even better. But once again, four years later, as I prepared for my college graduation now, the sadness set in again. So, in my grieving, I turned one more time to my mom. And this time, before she even got a word out, I said, I know, I know, I know. I know what you're going to say. Don't worry. It gets even better from here. Just wait. You'll see. And she looked me in the eyes and said, No, this is as good as it gets. <laughs> it's all downhill after college. <laughs> Thanks, mom. Once again, you were right. <laughs> Just kidding. Love you. Love my family. But college though. <laughs> Friends, I'm here to tell you this morning as your pastor that Mark chapter 1 verse 15 is as good as it gets in scripture. It's all downhill from here. Now, make no mistake, it's all good. All of God's word is good. It's all equally inspired. It's useful for teaching rebuking, correcting, training, and righteousness, all of that. But it's not all equally central. Just like any good story, there is a climax to this story. Scripture is a story. And the center point of Scripture to which all of the rest of the Bible is pointing and building all the way through, I want to I argue this morning, is this passage that we're going to get to study this morning. So as I've so boldly titled this morning's message, the most important verse in the Bible, I think it is, this single verse in Mark chapter 1. Now that's quite a pronouncement, so before we dive in, I want to quickly just try and support my claim to you and justify my sermon title. So in Romans 1.16, Paul tells us that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation for all who believe. Now we should stop and take that in for a moment. That is a rich, dense verse in and of itself, another good candidate for verse of the Bible. Just consider everything that Paul wraps into that one verse alone. Number one, that I need saving. I mean, implicit there is that I need saving. The bottom line, according to Romans 1, is that God is holy, God has created me for holiness. God loves me so much that he wants holiness for me. He'll settle for nothing less, and yet I'm not. I'm not holy. I'm sinful. And that makes for a massive relationship problem between a holy God and a sinful me. So I need saving. Number two, God does save. Paul says there is a power from God for salvation. So that should cause us to respond with a question, what is it? Tell me, Paul. And God, give me this power to be saved, to be reconciled to you. So the third thing that Paul wraps into this passage is he, he identifies God's saving power for us. It's the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. The euangelion, the good news. We should ask news, news that saves us, that seems odd. How does that work? Well, it's by point number four. The gospel is God's saving power. How? For whom? It's for all who believe. To everyone who believes. So according to the Bible, we're sinful. We need saving. God wants to save us. He's made it possible through some good news that I need to hear and I need to understand and I need to respond to by believing, by trusting for salvation. So, what's the obvious question that we're left with then? If the the gospel, Paul has raised the importance of the gospel to our consciousness now, what's the obvious question? What is the gospel? What is that news that I need to believe? And so before I give you the answer this morning, I actually want to spend just a moment to give you A crack at it yourself. So this is something we've started doing in my life group um, every every week together. And actually, I think it played a pretty significant uh, role in Allie's testimony that you'll get to hear um, later at her baptism. But I think this is really important to evangelize one another because if we're going to claim to be, which we are at West Hills, a gospel centered church and a missions driven church whose vision is to reach all of St. Louis with the good news, it's pretty important that we know what. That news is for ourselves first. And if we can't share it with one another in this kind of safe environment, we're never going to share it out there with them. So, would anybody volunteer to stand up and in, let's say, 10 seconds or less, um, because Jesus can do it in 10 seconds or less, uh, as we'll see. Would anybody stand up and just share the gospel with us? I got nowhere to be. (laughs) Jim, thank you. Good, thank you. Good news that we have a Savior. Jesus has come, died for our sins. Yes, good. Anybody else? Put in your own words. Lori, that's good. Thank you. God loves us. Barbara, amen. Thank you. Eternal life after death on this earth. Yeah, good. One more. That's good. Three is a good (laughs) biblical number. Well we'll add a fourth, uh, we'll let Jesus himself weigh in, probably a good idea. Those are all good definitions. The reason that I'm claiming this morning that Mark one fifteen is the most important verse in the Bible is that in Mark one fifteen, Jesus himself is going to articulate the gospel for us, define the gospel, the very power of God for salvation. From the lips of the Savior Himself. So, would you, out of respect for God's Word, as you're able, would you stand with me? Um, And I'll read these this brief passage, just two verses this morning, Mark chapter one, verses fourteen through fifteen. If you want to follow along, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, "The time is fulfilled." and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word, the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your gospel, your good word, your good news for us. Father, we thank you that in a world it seems like every time we turn on the TV, log on to the internet, open our phone, we're being bombarded with bad news. That Those of us here rally around the good news that is bigger and more foundational and unshakable than anything the world or circumstance or life could ever throw at us. That we have reason for hope. Father, we pray that this morning you would open our eyes, our minds, and our hearts to hear it in a new way, whether we've been Christians for decades or whether we're hearing it for the first time maybe this morning. Pray that you would illuminate our hearts this morning to hear and receive the good news of Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we left off uh, last week in our Study through the Gospel of Mark, rooted. We left off in verse 11 of Mark chapter 1. Got it on the screen there for you with John the Baptist baptizing Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, to inaugurate and officially kick off the public earthly ministry of Jesus. And the very next thing that we hear from Mark. In verses 12 and 13 is that immediately the Holy Spirit, who had descended on Jesus at his baptism, drove him out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, John had already told us in verse 4 that he was baptizing in the wilderness. They were already in the wilderness, so there must've, this must have been like wilderness, wilderness. Like if, if Jesus got uh, you know, baptized in St. Charles, he's being driven out to O'Fallon, like the sticks, Right? You appreciate that O'Fallon slam, Eli? <laughs> so Mark, Mark gives us only two verses about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. So I'm going to save that sermon um, for a later series in, in the Gospel of Matthew or Luke. And so we're going to jump ahead to verses 14 or 15, where Jesus returns from the wilderness and from his temptation to Galilee. And Mark informs us that John the Baptist has now been arrested, but more significantly in verse 14, we hear Mark set us up for verse 15 by telling us that Jesus was coming into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. Now, after hearing that passage in Romans 1.16, we should all be paying full attention at this point. We know the gospel is the power of salvation for all who would believe, so Jesus, tell us, what is it? What's the good news? And this is what he said. Three phrases. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Would you say it with me? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Again, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. If you only have one verse of the Bible memorized, it should be this one. So, Eli, could you uh, give us a blank screen here? Let's let's try it again. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Look, you've all got an an extra verse of the Bible memorized now. This is great. Now, if your agnostic neighbor asks you about the gospel, and you tell him that the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel, he's probably going to politely but quickly send his kids back inside and draw the blinds because that sounds like the kind of thing you would say before you pull out a weapon, (laughs) or at least before you pull out a soapbox and a megaphone. This is by all accounts to 21st century Western ears a bizarre statement, but for us as Christians it is the most important statement in the entire Bible, in all of history. And so we need to be really clear in our understanding of what Jesus means here so that we can translate it for others into our context today, into Americanese. And so let's unpack uh, unpack this biblically, and I'm going to warn you, the rest of this sermon is going to be very biblical. (laughs) It, It might not be the most personal sermon that you've ever heard. I'll try and leave you with some personal takeaways at the end, but I'm going to spend the bulk of this message simply defining the gospel as Jesus articulates it. And perhaps surprisingly, the good news really isn't about you or me. At its heart, at its core, I want to show you from Scripture this morning that the good news is so much bigger, so much better Than if it just focused on you. God has got a whole kingdom in mind here, spanning all of history, and we are not, in fact, the main act. We are certainly not the protagonists. We're not even up for best supporting actor or actress. We are, at best, relatively minor characters in God's unfolding drama who are made important, who are made significant by our protagonist and by the author of the story who graciously writes us into his story. This, this book is about him. That's why so many of us like, struggle to read it sometimes. We, we wish it was a, more about us. I mean, we wish it was... But it's, it's his story. It's about him. And we struggle sometimes to, to get out of ourselves and our self-centeredness to focus on God and his story. So here we go. Jesus offers three separate phrases here, and so we're going to take each in turn. First, the time is fulfilled. Now, we, we emphasized this last week when we studied John the Baptist. Jesus didn't show up in a vacuum. He didn't arrive on a scene devoid of context. The Bible doesn't start in Mark chapter 1. Mark reminds us with John the Baptist and his fulfillment of the prophecies of the books of Exodus and Isaiah and Malachi and others that Jesus stepped into a lot of context, thousands of years of context, two-thirds of the Bible worth of context, the Old Testament. And so when Jesus opens his mouth for the first time here, And the Gospel of Mark in this landmark watershed moment, it is significant that Jesus, too, begins by recognizing that. When Jesus says the time is fulfilled, first of all, we need to recognize that he's talking to a Jewish audience in the first century that would appreciate his context. He's in Galilee, we hear. Jesus tells us in Matthew 15, 24 that he was sent first to the Jews. Paul reminds us of that in the second half of that Romans 1.16 passage, actually. Paul says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, dot, 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 to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. And so we've got to hear Jesus through his first century Jewish ears. And what would every first century Jewish listener to a guy who moments ago... God had parted the clouds and proclaimed him to be his own beloved son, what, what would they hear when Jesus next turns around and says, the time is fulfilled? Well, I think they would hear Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 11, where Zechariah says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free. They would hear Micah 5, 2 through 5, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, from you shall come forth for me, for God, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days." And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. They would hear Ezekiel 34. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will shepherd my sheep. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the strayed, I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak. I will feed them in justice. I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be prey. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. Friends, Ezekiel's writing here 400 years after David's death. He's not talking about David. He's prophesying a new David a new king for God's people. Isaiah 9, they would hear Isaiah 9, but there will be no gloom for who? For Galilee. Galilee of the nations, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. We get those beautiful verses. You can hear Handel's Messiah ringing in your ears. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Will do this. And for thousands and thousands of years now, as a people, the nation of Israel has been collectively saying, bring it on. That sounds amazing because we've been enslaved in Egypt, we've been threatened by the Philistines, we've been conquered by the Assyrians, exiled by the Babylonians, ruled over by the Persians and the Greeks, and now persecuted and abused by the Romans. So God, any day you want to send that Messiah, usher in that day of peace, of hope, of freedom and justice, that light in the darkness, when God himself will divinely shepherd us once again, our wonderful counselor, mighty God, replace Placing Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar and Caesar and all the others to once again rule over us from David's throne. That would be great. And Jesus tells them the time is fulfilled. It's time. Fulfilled implies that something else had to happen first. Why not send Jesus instead of Moses 1,500 years sooner, free the Israelites straight from slavery in Egypt, save everyone a lot of time and heartache? It wasn't time yet. Why not send Jesus 1,000 years earlier instead of David, the perfect king that they truly needed all along? It wasn't time yet. Why not send them 500 years early, free them from exile in Babylon? It wasn't time yet. Acts 1-7, the Father fixes the times and the seasons by his authority. Daniel 2-21, God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. Isaiah 46, God says, I am God, there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose, God established before the foundations of the earth, before the beginning of time itself, exactly when and where and how Jesus would be sent to preach the gospel and to consummate the gospel, to become our good news, and it wouldn't happen a moment too soon or a second too late. Jesus says, now, now it's time. So friends, if I could just give you one quick personal takeaway on this point. Before we move to our second phrase, some of you feel like you've been waiting, like you've been wanting, been wandering, hoping, and praying, and searching for a long time, and you can't understand why God isn't coming through. Listen, I, I get it. Polly and I have been struggling with infertility for two and a half years since we had Ellery. We struggled for two years before that. I get it. I'm preaching to myself this morning. But we either have to conclude that God has forgotten about us or that he has a plan and he has a timeline and we can trust him and the time just isn't fulfilled yet. Galatians 4.4, 4, Paul says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Romans 5.6, at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We can trust his timing. Keep holding on, keep, keep hoping, keep praying. God hasn't forgotten about you. That's the first phrase. And what's the second? Jesus says the time is fulfilled, and then what? And the kingdom of God is at hand. All right. If we need to go back to our memory work again, we can't. Time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, the Greek verb here is engeken. The kingdom is at hand. It's drawn near. It is upon you. It's in your midst. It's in front of you. It's right under your noses is what is signified here. It's talking to you. It's me, Jesus says. It's me. The kingdom of God is engeken, I've brought it. God's kingdom is here now because I'm here to fulfill it, to embody it, to consummate it. In a nutshell, Jesus is saying, "I am king." And biblically, that is the shortest, most to the point way that you and I can summarize the gospel for someone without cheapening it one bit. If someone asks you, "What's the gospel?" The shortest way you can share the gospel without cheapening it at all is to say Jesus is king. Jesus is saying I'm your long-awaited king. Zechariah's humble king, Micah's great ruler king, Ezekiel's servant shepherd king, Isaiah's prince of peace king. I'm finally here, the one you've been waiting for. And if you Don't know much about Old Testament history. I want to just sum up the Old Testament for you in our remaining eight or so minutes here using this theme of kingship. And if you're a visual learner, I'm going to include some really unattractive visuals to try and grab your attention. Visual art is not my spiritual giftedness, but hopefully. It'll be helpful nonetheless. So I've got Scripture with these. You can go back and look up on your own. So in the beginning, this is the story of Scripture. This is the story of all of time. In the beginning, God was king. God was ruling sovereignly over everything he created, one kingdom. Now sometime in ancient history between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 3-1, a second kingdom is born. We hear about that in Luke 10, 18, and Isaiah 14. One of God's angels, Lucifer, in his pride, rejected God as king, rebelled, and consequently was thrown out of God's kingdom, and now a second kingdom is born, the kingdom of hell. Jesus himself confirms that Satan was given a kingdom by God, Matthew 12, 26, and Luke 4, 8, and 9. The New Testament calls Satan the god of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the ruler of this world, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, Ephesians 2, 2, John 12, 31. So Satan's got a kingdom now. Now back to Genesis, and before we even get to chapter 2, we hear of a third kingdom, our kingdom, humanity's kingdom. Because of Part of what it means to be created in God's image is that he gave us dominion over the earth. That means agency, autonomy, free will. And that goes, all right, for four verses. And then in chapter 3, it all falls apart because of the influence of the second kingdom on our third kingdom. Satan's kingdom over our kingdom. Satan convinces Adam and Eve that they would make better kings for themselves, calling the shots on their own, than to go on submitting to God's kingship and rule. And so God gives them what they want. His rightful place on the throne of their hearts. God steps away and lets us rule for ourselves. And within three chapters, we hear that humanity has devolved into a lying, idolatrous, Vengeful, murderous, polygamous people of whom God says every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5, and 6, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth. Three chapters it took. But in his mercy and in his goodness, God starts over in Act 3. So we've got Act 1, Act 2, now Act 3, Part 3. First with Noah... Then with Abram, later with Moses, and with David, God is restoring his kingdom rule within our earthly domain through a chosen people who are specifically called out of of that second kingdom, the spread of sin and Satan's kingdom, called out of that to be a chosen holy nation priesthood for God, Exodus 19.6. And he tells them, Deuteronomy 33.5, that I will be your king once again. And then the story of the rest of the Old Testament is basically summed up as the Israelites rejecting God as their king over and over and over again. And over and over and over and over again, by making golden calves, by worshiping the false gods of other nations, even explicitly asking God for a human king like the other nations to replace you. Thank you very much. But even Israel's best kings, best kings were adulterous murderers, David. And so God's people are led further astray deeper into sin, and no amount of warning or rebuke from God's anointed messengers, his prophets, who constitute a third of the Old Testament, seem to make much difference. We've made up our minds. We would rather be king. Thank you very much. But the prophets do give us these glimpses of hope of a brighter future, a fully restored kingdom when God will return in the flesh to rule in person once and for all again. Zechariah 9, Micah 5, Ezekiel 34, Isaiah 9, unto us a child will be born. Emmanuel, God with us. Not just God speaking to us, Not just God existing near us in an Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, accessible once a year to one specially designated priest. Not just God nearby, but God with us. Which brings us to Jesus in Act 4 and his pronouncement in Mark chapter 1. Time's up, the wait's over, I'm here your long-awaited king. Now, there is an act five where God's kingdom actually advances in this world and pushes back the darkness. Spoiler alert, we're living it today. We're supposed to be an act five people. That's why God left us here. This is act five, and there will be an even better act six that we still await, ultimate restoration when all darkness, all suffering, every tear is wiped away. When God will be with us, not just in human form like in Act 4, and not just in spirit form in our hearts like here in Act 5, but the entire Trinity reigning together over the earth and gathering together a multitude from every nation and every tribe unto himself with every knee bowed and every tongue confessing that God is King. But in our last minute or two here, let's just, let's just live in the story where we are in Mark chapter one, in act four, part four. Let's just live here for a moment in the significance of Jesus showing up on the scene and announcing the good news that I'm here, I'm finally here to be your king So I want to close this morning by offering some thoughts on what that should mean for you and me personally. What does it mean for Jesus to be king? He gives us a hint in his third phrase that we haven't examined yet, so let's turn there. How does Jesus conclude his gospel presentation? The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, so what? What are we supposed to do about it? Repent and believe. Repent, turn from your sin, turn from your selfishness, from your self-sufficiency. Confess that you make a lousy king, friend. Don't you? Who here can control whether or not you even get home safely today, much less the next 30 years of your life? You make a lousy king. Step off the throne of your heart. It's a throne too big for you. It was never designed for you. Repent. And then what? Believe. Believe the good news. The bad news is you make a lousy king. The good news is he makes a great king. He wants to be your king. Believe him. Believe. I've said it a thousand times. It's a bad English translation. We hear believe and we we think a cognitive thing. We think a doctrinal thing, a head thing. The Greek verb pistuo is about our hearts. Who holds your heart? If God forbid something happened to my daughter tomorrow, I would be wrecked because she has my heart. How different would your life be if you'd never even heard of Jesus? Like practically, how different would it be? That's the question. If the honest answer is not all that different, it's a Sunday morning thing, a one or two hours a week thing, then you might know plenty about Jesus. You might believe all the right doctrine in your head, but friends, you don't pistuo. You might believe you don't trust. You don't have faith. You don't pistuo. Where does your hope ultimately lie? That's the question. Where's your hope? Who's your king? You know, I was thinking this week, what does it mean to be a king? Like practically, what does it mean to be a king? What does a king do? And it occurred to me, that a king really does two things he governs and he protects that's what a king that's that's you know whether it was king david 3000 years ago president trump today that's really the job description for a ruler a king govern lead us guide us enact and enforce regulations that promote our welfare and secondly protect us keep us safe from the philistines or from isis from ourselves. That's part of what governing is, protecting us from ourselves. And it just occurred to me for the first time really this week that that's exactly what it means for Christians to call Jesus our Lord and our Savior. Govern, protect, Lord and Savior. To call Jesus your King means to trust him to, one, govern you perfectly as your Lord. Submit your will to his will. His will be done. And two, to protect you completely. Not from all of life's circumstances. That's not the ultimate enemy. Protect you in the most infinite, eternal, important sense. The ultimate enemy is sin. He protects us because he's our savior. Jesus is Lord and he's savior. He is king. and He's a good king. He never lets us down. We can trust him. The question this morning is, is he your king? Is he your king? Let's pray.